great to be here with you and uh, to close out this series. I, I know that this has been uh, stretching for many people and uh, some hard, difficult conversations have had to happen. And so I'm grateful that you've allowed me to come and be a part of that. And uh, hopefully, um, by the time we're done this morning, you will hear something, at least one thing, uh, that might be helpful, that you might find helpful. Uh, not necessarily the kind of thing that you can tie a bow on at the end, um, but something maybe uh, to to think through and to pray through. Uh, so just to begin that project, uh, let's pray together. Creator God, we thank you for this time together this morning to open your word and to open our hearts. And God, I would pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that everything said and heard in this place be from you and because of you and drawing us towards you. And we ask for open hearts that we can receive your challenge to live as Christ-formed people in our world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was born in Mississippi, and Mississippi has a certain distinct history for a lot of things when it comes to unity and diversity. And one of the stories that has always stuck with me is uh, something that happened on June 7th, 1964. A group of men gathered as they normally did in the basement of the Methodist church that they always attended, and they had their devotional time together. And at the end of their time together, they said a prayer as they did every time they were together. Only this time, someone bothered to write down the prayer. And this is what they captured from that prayer. It says, Our God, our Heavenly Father, as infinite creature, as finite creatures of time and as dependent creatures of thine, we acknowledge thee as our sovereign Lord. Permit freedom and the joys thereof to forever reign throughout our land. May the sweet cup of brotherly fraternity ever be ours to enjoy and build within us that kindred spirit which will keep us unified. Engender within us that wisdom kindred to honorable decisions and to godly work. By the power of thy infinite spirit and the energizing virtue therein, ever keep before us our pledges of righteousness. Bless us now in this assembly that we may honor thee in all things. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. That prayer was led by a man named Sam Bowers. And after that prayer, Sam Bowers and the men gathered together, locally known as the Ku Klux Klan, decided to leave and carry out to fulfill God's mission for white supremacy. Three days later, four civil rights workers were murdered in God's name. Having been born and some part of my childhood raised in Mississippi, there are a lot of stories about people in the 60s. And one of my favorite involves this man. His name is Medgar Evers. And Medgar Evers was the local leader of the NAACP in Jackson, Mississippi, where I was born. And one night, Medgar Evers was coming home from a local meeting of the NAACP. And the reason they had this meeting that night 
because it was an emergency meeting, was because President John F. Kennedy had just given a national address on segregation. And so they had this emergency meeting, and since Medgar Evers was the leader of that group, he was at that meeting, and he came home, got out of his car, walked around to the back of his trunk to unload a box of T-shirts. Emblazoned on every T-shirt were the words, Jim Crow must go. As he was lifting the box of T-shirts out of his trunk, he was shot in the back with a bullet from an M1917 Enfield rifle. His wife inside heard the shot. The lights in the house come on and she rushes out and greets him, picks him up, and takes him to the local hospital. And by the time they get to the local hospital, he's bleeding. He's barely on the verge of clinging to life. And he's refused admittance into the hospital. Because at that hospital, they didn't service black patients. It was only after they realized who he was, that he was a leader in the city of Jackson, that they admitted him to the hospital. But by the time they admitted him to the hospital, it was too late. 45 minutes after... Medgar Evers was shot in his driveway. He died. He was shot by a man named Byron De La Beckwith, who wouldn't be convicted of that crime for over another 20 years. And the reason that story stands out to me is that my father was Medgar Evers' paperboy. And he tells a story about what a non-event that was in the city of Jackson. That every day after school, my dad would take the bus over to where the newspaper was. He would get his newspapers, walk his route, he'd throw in every yard, throw in the Evers yard. And one day to the next, it was as if nothing ever happened. But what I find fascinating about both those stories, about Sam Bowers and about Byron De La Beckwith, is that these men didn't become the murderous people that they were because they lacked religious conviction. They became the men they were because they had religious conviction. They believed with everything in them that what they were doing was God's will. And what saddens me about that it's not that there have been and are and always will be people who want to build some sort of hostility wall between races or genders or age or socioeconomic class or language or nationality. There always have been those people. There will always be those people. What saddens about that about me, for me is that those people did what they did because that's what they thought God wanted them to do. But when I flip open the pages of the New Testament, what I find there is a God who is calling and asking his people not to do that, but to do the exact opposite of that. So one of my favorite writers uh, when I was in my late 20s was a guy named Philip Yancey. And I love the way that he talks about the church. He says, when I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity, 
the primary testing ground of grace, beginning with Pentecost, which we just celebrated last Sunday. Pentecost Sunday was last Sunday. A gathering of people from many countries, the Christian church, dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. And so what Yancey says is like, this is what the church has been from the beginning, or at least it is what the church was supposed to be from the very beginning. This group that tore down divisions, this group that lived in oneness, and we have found throughout history ways to undo the very thing that the church was designed to do. And so one of my friends a couple of years ago wrote a book about the church and about our primary call to be a fellowship of different kind of people. And he called it a fellowship of difference, not of difference like there's a difference when you do math, but of different kind of people. And he says the church is designed to be a fellowship of difference. And what happens most of the time in the American church is that we form a fellowship of sames. That people who look like us and talk like us and sound like us and who make about the same amount of money as us. And we come to church on Sunday, we gather around in our small groups and we serve together through the week and we go off all around the world on mission trips together and we're really a fellowship of sames. When the church is supposed to be a fellowship of difference. And so this is the way that he describes what a first century church looked like. He said, to get some concrete ideas in our heads, we need to know something right away. We need to see that these early Christians did not meet in churches and sit apart from one another in pews, and then when the music ended, get up and go in their cars and go home. These early churches were small and were much closer to our home Bible studies than to most of our worship services. Recently, a very careful study by a British scholar concluded that if the Apostle Paul's house church, the Apostle Paul's house churches were composed of about 30 people, a max estimate. This would have been their approximate makeup, a craft worker in whose home they met, along with his wife, children, a couple of male slaves, a female domestic slave, and a dependent relative. Some tenants with families and slaves and dependents also living in the same home in a rented room. Some family members of a householder who himself does not participate in the house church. A couple of slaves whose owners did not attend. Some freed slaves who do not participate in the church. A couple of homeless people. A few migrant workers renting small rooms in the home. Add to this mix some Jewish folks and perhaps an enslaved prostitute. And we see how many different tastes were in the typical house church in Rome. Men and women, citizens and freed slaves and slaves who had no legal rights, Jews and Gentiles, people from all moral walks of life, and perhaps most notably, people from elite classes all the way down the scale to homeless people. Do you think these folks agreed on everything? Was it hard? Yes. And the truth for most of us, is that we live in an upside-down world from the world that Christians in the New Testament live, not just in our culture, but in our church itself. And these quotes from, from Philip Yancey and from Scott McKnight, they're the kind of thing that gives me hope. And maybe, maybe it shouldn't. Maybe I should be depressed 
about the state of the world and the state of the church, but they actually give me hope that there is something germinal, there's something at the seed of Christianity that is good and whole and beautiful and something that we can reclaim. But it means having to recapture what it is that we were supposed to do in the first place. So I know a couple of weeks ago, Brian talked with you about this little tick that we have in American Christianity, where we talk about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, well, did you know that that's not actually very old? It's a little bit older than Billy Graham. And that started because people out there across the country felt like church was boring and disconnected and that it was all about rituals. And someone came along trying to evangelize people and said that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not actually biblical. That was, that was a tactic to get people to see how God could embrace them personally. But now we talk about it all the time. And the problem is that the Apostle Paul would find that language odd. Because you realize that when you open up your Bible, the Apostle Paul uses the term our Lord about 53 times. Jesus, God, is our Lord. He uses the phrase, my Lord, once. Our relationship with God was designed to be communal. And I know that's really difficult in a culture where everything that we talk about is about mine, 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 mine. And the church is the only entity in the history of the world that has said, no, it's ours. And the word that the church has always used for this idea of our Lord, the term we've always used for that, is called the gospel. Now, we may be confused about what the gospel is. Because people have told us that the gospel is something that the Bible actually doesn't tell us that the gospel is. People have told us that the gospel is that if you do certain things, believe certain things, that when you die, you get to go to heaven. And that's the gospel. And when you come to a saving knowledge of the gospel, then you have been saved. And that's the gospel. But did, did you know that the Bible actually tells us this is the gospel? It tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is what it says. says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. That's a clue that I preached to you when you received, which you received and which you have taken as your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So, okay, get yourself primed. Paul's going to remind us what is the gospel. For what I received, I pass on to you as first importance. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, 
and then to the 12. That's the gospel. It's not a theory. It's not an idea. It's an action. It's an event that happened in the real world. It took place. It had a tangible outcome. And when we hear that, we think to ourselves, well, of course that's the gospel. That sounds like the gospel. I've read that before. But it wasn't so simple if you were living in first century Palestine. Because when Jesus died, all of this crazy stuff happens. There are earthquakes. And people get really anxious about a lot of things. And then the veil of the curtain in the temple is torn. And then something happened that had never happened before. All of the people who had other gods now had access to Israel's God. So here's what we need to understand about the ancient world, that everybody, every race, sometimes every clan, every nation had their own God. And they believed that their God was the best God, and their gods were always competing. At least the people who believed in that God thought their gods were always competing. But then along comes a man, and he says that he is actually God. And that man is crucified, but in three days he rises from the dead and proves that, hey, I am actually the real God because I have overcome death. And because I have done that, the veil of the curtain is torn in the temple and everybody in the world, everybody in the world now can be saved and have a relationship with Israel's God. That you can abandon your God, you can abandon your gods, you can have Israel's God because Israel's God has been proven to be the actual God. And that is terrifying if you live in the first century. Because the only thing that you have known your entire life is that everybody has their own God. That race has their own God, and that ethnicity has their own God, and that people over there, that nation has their own God. And now you're telling us that there's one God, and everybody has access to this God. Let me help you see this a little clearer. What if I were to tell you right now, everybody in the whole world has free and open access to all of your assets? To your checking account, to your savings account, to your retirement account, your house, your cars, in part of you saying, wait, that's mine. And you don't like a whole lot of those people in the first place. That's what it was like. When we don't get what they got implicitly, that this is a completely different way to understand life. And you wouldn't get it either. If you, like the first disciples, had spent your entire life discerning who was included and who was excluded based on race, ethnicity, nationality, and gender. Your whole life is structured around, you get to do this, you get to have that, you have access to there, based on all of those classifications. Or maybe you do. 
maybe over the course of your life, there's been some seepage into your heart where you really believe at a fundamental level that people are a certain way or do certain things or can have certain things based on race, nationality, age, gender. And I'm over here. And I'm this kind of person. And everybody else who isn't a fellowship of my sayings, those are other people. Those are those people. So every letter that Paul writes in the New Testament at the heart is about one thing. Getting Jews to accept Gentiles and getting Gentiles to accept Jews. And that's why the biggest problem in the church in the first century is the church. And so as you're reading through the book of Acts, you get to this experience that an apostle named Peter has, where Peter has this vision from God. Because Peter doesn't want all of those Gentiles in his church, and he doesn't want to deal with all of their Gentile problems and all of their Gentile food. But God sends him this vision. And he sends him some people. And Peter, at the end of that story, says, oh, now I get it. Now I see that God shows no favoritism. Which no one in the world really likes. Because we'd all like God to show a little bit of favoritism. Especially when it comes to us. And Peter has this conversion. To understand that God does not show favoritism to anybody for any reason. But his conversion doesn't stick. And so later in the story, Peter's with Paul and they're in Antioch. And some people come who are from James. Now, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and the Jerusalem church had like zero Gentiles. It was just all Jews, just because that was the center of Judaism. And then we land in Galatians with this funny story that happens to Peter. This is the way Paul tells that story. He says, and the other Jews, whoa, we're way ahead. All right. Are we still way ahead? No, we're good. That's good. See, I've memorized the whole thing. All of Galatians. Paul says, but when, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned for until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision party. So when the people from James come, all Jews, when they come, uh, Peter forgets all about that idea of the vision that he had and meeting Cornelius and that God shows no favoritism. And he says, while the Jews are here, I'm just going to stick with the Jews and do the Jew stuff, and I don't want them to see me doing the Gentile stuff. You've got friends like this. Who, when you're with them, they're kind of one way, but then there are some other folks who show up, and suddenly you're like, who are you all of a sudden? That you completely change who it is that you are and what it is that you're about, and that's exactly what Peter has done. But the damage isn't limited just to how Peter behaves. 
Paul tells us next. And the other Jews, those who were already in Antioch, joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see that? Peter decides to turn away. And a bunch of other people follow him. Now here's what's dangerous about that and scary. Like you've, you've all have been in this series on oneness for a while, and no matter whether you're talking about race or gender or generational differences, there's always someone who wants to hop in bed with hypocrisy. And there's always a bunch of people who want to follow them. Here's what you have to know about what you believe and how we act. A bunch of people cheering us on as we do something does not make an act good or righteous. And we live in a culture that we think we can say, well, a lot of people believe what I believe. A lot of people think what I think. A lot of people vote how I vote. And when we're telling ourselves that, we also need to follow that up by saying, so what? Because a lot of people can do anything. Having lots of people who follow a horrible agenda should not be confused with righteousness. Peter goes astray, and he leads a bunch of other people astray with him. And that's why I think Paul rebukes him so strongly. Paul says, but when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Did you catch that? Paul says that Peter's desire to rebuild this wall between Jews and Gentiles, between one group of people and another group of people. Paul doesn't say that that's just a bad idea or that's just his opinion, that's just his political philosophy. Paul doesn't say, well, that's just the way that he was raised. Paul says that is not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. So that means that whenever you or I do something that creates, something that builds, something that supports the divisions in our world, that's not just our opinion. That's not just something that's harmless. That's not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. And the task of living in oneness with other people that is the task of the gospel. And I'm kind of like you. If the Bible didn't say it, I probably wouldn't believe it. But Paul says, when these men came and they wanted to create 
old, traditional, the way we were raised division. That's out of step with the gospel. And we live in a world where it's very easy to get out of step with the gospel. And I'll give you one glaring example that you all know too well. Police shootings. I guess that almost every time we hear of a police shooting, we know what we think before we find out what the facts were or what the truth is, or what the history has been. We believe what we believe before we know how police are trained. We just believe what we believe. And if someone else believes differently or opposite of what we believe, we don't take that as an opportunity to get in step with oneness and the truth of the gospel. We take that as an opportunity to tell ourselves how much we, how right we are. And we turn the radio to the stations that will tell us that we're right. And we turn our televisions to the news that will tell us that we are right. And we pick up our friends and get on Facebook and post all the things that will tell us that we are right. And we don't care about the wall because we've never known that that was not in keeping with the gospel. And I grew up in Mississippi. And there are certain things that when they happen in the news, I have an immediate reaction. And I just know that I'm right. But let me tell you about Thanksgiving. A couple of years ago, we were at Thanksgiving dinner with my wife's family. And my wife is Caucasian, and oddly enough, so are most of her family. <laughs> and so we're in Houston having Thanksgiving dinner. And this is right in the middle of a lot of big, prominent national news stories about police shooting unarmed black men. And like I told you, I have a reaction to that. I have an understanding about that that's been borne out by history and experience. But also at Thanksgiving dinner is my wife's cousin, Andy. And Andy's a good kid. I've known him since he was about 15 years old. He's had his ups and downs like everyone else. But Andy, in the last several years, has become a Houston police officer. And Andy's working Thanksgiving Day. So we all sit down to eat. And Andy shows up. He's on his way to work. He arrives in his patrol car, walks through the door, is in his uniform, vest on, sidearm, everything. He sits down to eat, and I've never seen someone struggle this hard to eat with all of that. <laughs> and after we're done eating, Andy gets up and goes to the door because he's got to go to work. And he does what husbands and fathers have done probably since the beginning of time. She kisses his wife and kisses his three kids before he leaves for work. And as I'm sitting at the 
table watching Andy leave, it occurs to me, though police officers statistically are rarely killed in the line of duty, and that year it was at an all-time low, though that's the case, I thought it really is different when he goes to work than when I go to work. And that doesn't change anything. It doesn't have to change the way you think about that issue or any other issue. It doesn't have to change anyone's opinion about anything. It doesn't have to change for ways we work for justice for all people. It doesn't have to change anything. But it does change one thing. That when Andy leaves, I'm reminded that we're all in this together. Because Andy and I both call Jesus our Lord. And if we cannot be the kind of people who willfully and deliberately see the world from the other side. We will always be more like Peter than we will be like Paul. We will always be living in hypocrisy and not in step with the gospel. And until we understand that that is the gospel, we will always find reasons to do something else because it's easy for you to send your kids on the next mission trip and call that the work of the Lord than to do this. And so for most churches, when they begin to take these issues seriously, what happens is that a good number of them leave. They say, I didn't want to talk about that, and then they start coming with all sorts of other excuses. There's a church closer to my house. There's a church where I like the pastor better. There's a church with better music. There's a church with better kids. There's always a reason. There's always an excuse. But the truth of the matter is that it's a really easy way to see which people want to be in step with the gospel and which people who don't. And if you're still here, you're the people who do. But you have to keep stepping. Because Paul does this amazing thing in every letter. Because he's got this task of bridging this divide between Jews and Gentiles. This divide that neither side really wants bridge, but Paul keeps calling the gospel. He writes these letters, and at the beginning of them, as they gather around in these house churches together, he begins them and he says, grace and peace to you. And the reason he says grace and peace isn't because grace is a good thing and peace is a good thing. He could have picked anything if he just wanted some good things. He could have said love and joy to you, honor and nobility, ethical living to you. Paul could have said any of that. He says grace and peace because grace is a traditional Jewish greeting. And peace is a traditional Gentile greeting. If you want to be the people of God, you have to learn to be people who greet the Jews and who greet the Gentiles always the same. May it be so with you.
from now and forevermore. With those with ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. Let me pray for you. God, we are grateful that you have extended to us grace and peace to be your people in this time, in this place, to participate with you in the renewing of all things. And we'd ask God that you give us strength and fortitude and energy and willingness to keep in step with the gospel, to act consistently with the gospel. For you, Lord, are our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.